Brothers and sisters, we are celebrating this morning the Reformation, like I said. If I uh, count back, and my memory is not the strongest um, anymore, um, if I have done a topical sermon in my 30 years or so of ministry, uh, it's probably less than five. Uh, because, you know, we uh, Reformed preachers, we don't do topical sermons. <laughs> we say God's people need to know the word. And so we take a text, you know, that we just read, and we just go through it, as it were, and we um, expound it, right? But for today, I'm taking that exception to say I have a topical sermon for us. A topical sermon on the topic of the Reformation. The Reformation was in great need of, the church was in great need of Reformation in Luther's and Calvin's time, wasn't it? And so we are, we are looking at this topic of the necessity of reforming the church then and today. John Calvin was asked by Martin Butzer, who lived in Strasbourg, to write a paper, a speech really, that would be presented before a political assembly called a Diet, the Diet of Speyer. And Speyer is a city in Germany. And the emperor, Charles V, and all kinds of nobility and royalty would be gathered there at such an assembly. And, um, and this speech would be read to those in attendance. And so he, Calvin was asked to present this speech. And he called it the necessity of reforming the church. Why was it necessary? Why did the emperor need to know? Why did the pope need to know? Why did all the local priests need to know that the church was in need of reformation? Because they all knew that there was a problem with the church. <laughs> That's not the question. They all knew that things were not right in the church. There was this tremendous amount of corruption from the highest down to the lowest. And uh, things uh, were uh, mistreated that are the means of grace, we call them, the sacraments. There was a lot of superstition uh, that was not feeding biblical faith and certainty, but a superstitious faith, uh, works righteousness. If you do enough, then God will bless you and take you eventually into heaven. Well, long story short, Calvin wrote this paper, um, The Necessity of Reforming the Church. And he highlights four areas of concentration that he says would be pivotal in reforming the church. It all starts with worship. Worship is the controlling factor in our understanding of how, would how would God would have his church be reformed at all times, not just then, but today as well. That's why I am taking liberty to say the necessity of reforming the church then and today. There's nobody here in this room who would say, oh, there's no problem with the church, is there? We all know nothing is perfect. Uh, sooner or later, I just know from experience recently that you can have an impression of something going on at some church and it's going wonderful and, and things are great and uh, flourishing and just uh, out of the blue sky, something happens and boom, disruption. People leaving and so forth. Some of us know what I'm referring to. So this is the, the message this morning, that my message about 
the Bible calls us always to pattern our worship, to pattern the church's life on the word of God. And the word of God must direct how we serve the Lord. And that is why I did uh, think that a passage like Jude uh, dovetails some of those comments that it makes. Um, you know, uh, those who contend for the faith that was once for all delivered. We as Bible-believing Christians, we are called to contend for the faith, to defend the faith. Uh, in light of that history that we are aware of, of the Middle Ages, but also today, we know that there are the ungodly that are perverting the grace of God into sensuality. Uh, and I don't just mean you know, sexual sensuality, but I mean, for example, that uh, people in the pew are uh, presented with messages that are really focusing on man, on things. If you ask God, he will give it to you. That kind of sensuality, you might almost call it. Um, there are all these points in this passage we read in Jude that really do dovetail with these major concerns that Calvin brings to the forefront uh, and that is being presented at this very um, important meeting in 1544. So what about worship? There's such confusion today about worship, isn't there? I don't know if you're aware of that, but I, I, I think there is, there is confusion. Um, I have a book that I'm uh, reading through that is about worship. Um, and it is an acknowledgement that, uh, that Christians and well-meaning Christians uh, are, are having different understandings about worship, what worship is. Um, somebody uh, some years ago already um, wrote in an article in a Reformed Church magazine and he referred then already to the practices that were beginning to uh, creep in in the, in the reformed worship of that particular denomination and he called it liturgical chaos. Uh, liturgical chaos because it almost seems uh, that uh, we, we don't quite know anymore what worship is. Uh, is everything worship? Just because you have a few people together and you, um, you, know, you, 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 you have some songs that you sing and you and may have a prayer, uh, does that mean that that is classified as worship? Well, maybe it is, but maybe it is not. Um, I just this week uh, on an app, I received like a, an app that has to do with Christian ministry. So all kinds of things pass through. And this one uh, was entitled Elevation Worship Tickets Top $1,000. So I didn't know about this group, but it's called Elevation Worship. You can look it up, not right now, <laughs> on your phones. <laughs> Some Elevation Worship goers may experience sticker shock when they look for tickets for the band's L.A. concert, a front row seat to Elevation Worship at the Kia Forum in L.A., November 3rd, is now going for $1,000 plus and booking fees. And then when you are all done with your parking ticket that you need, uh, you're looking at about $1,300 to worship. I'm not judging these people. I listened to one song, and it was extremely repetitive, and the song was about you talking to Jesus. Now, prayer is talking 
Don't get me wrong. But is worship always worship necessarily? And so the reformers said when they look at their situation, and I invite us to look at our situation broadly speaking, is everything worship that claims to be worship? Biblically speaking, worship is when the people of God who have been set aside by God through his call of the gospel to which they have responded in faith, they have repented of their sins, they have been baptized in the triune God, they belong now to the people of God, those are the people whom God calls into worship. And of course, everybody else is welcome. <laughs> Don't get me wrong there either. But who are the worshipers of God? Those who have been signed and sealed with the blood of Jesus. And when we have the blood of Jesus on our souls, if you will, we belong for body, body for, for time and eternity to him. And therefore, we have an exclusive ambition in this world for as long as we live, long or short, we don't know. But we say, Lord, call me and I will come. And the Lord does call us and we have come today, haven't we? You have not just heard an invitation to come to a you know, society meeting. Those are fine by themselves, but this is worship. And you have obeyed the Lord God who made heaven and earth and who made you. And he made you in such a way that you bear his image and that image in Christ is being restored little by little progressively until God says he is ready to receive us into his presence and with great joy we shall stand there and maybe our brother Ed will do so today and we will at some point as well and we will worship him who calls us to worship. Because biblical worship focuses on God. It focuses on the time that is to come in light of which we worship him today. It is God, Christ-centered worship. And so much of today's worship, I do want, not want to always point fingers at others, but I know that the Bible calls God's people to worship the living God according to his word. It's a little bit of a different context, but I am applying it to this particular topic. When Joshua says in chapter 21, verse 25, in those days Israel had no king, everyone did as they saw fit. I sometimes feel that the churches today think, now this is how we think God would be happy with us. And so we're going to do this, and we're going to do this. And some of it may be biblical, and some of it may be just human invention. Just like John Calvin and Luther said of the Roman Catholic Church of their time, so much is invented, so much is not found in the Bible, but it has been placed on top of what the Christian church always believed. So that so many layers have come on top of what we have believed that what is underneath it is obscured. And that really was the character of the Protestant Reformation to peel all those layers away until we have the Bible again. Hallelujah! We want the Bible. The Bible is enough. We don't need the Pope's statements. We don't need Synod's statements. We don't need the opinions of men and theologians. We want Christ to speak to us. 
And so the worship is central to the reformation of the church then and today. The second thing that uh, the reformers, uh, that, uh, that Calvin isolates, is that topic of uh, salvation. Luther, of course, discovered that wonderful, freeing, liberating experience that he found himself under the love of his heavenly father because the father justifies sinners on the basis of his good news message, not the law. The law only demands of us what we cannot give to God, perfection. But that perfection that we can't give to God, Christ has earned it for us. And so Christ, by his wonderful obedience, he laid down his life. The Son of God laid down his life for me and for you so that we would become true worshipers of God with all of our lives because we have to come to that point that we recognize we cannot save ourselves. And this is where the church of the day back then had to be reformed. People had to understand that your good deeds, going to church, going to mass, giving, uh, buying these indulgences uh, that would pay for the time you spent in purgatory and even your dead loved ones were benefiting from it as well. Um, you know, all these things that were pointing to a man-centered view of God and salvation that had to be radically reformed, radically transformed, because the worship that God is pleased with is the worship that he demands. When a worship committee gets together, or the elders get together, or the pastor in his study thinks about the next week's worship, we don't have the liberty, according to God's word, to dream up our own inventions of worship by which we could say, well, I really think that God would be happy with this. That's irrelevant. The Lord requires obedience, not sacrifice, unless that sacrifice is a living sacrifice that comes from the heart, that is in agreement with God's word, and the triune God will be pleased with it because he himself sanctifies it and makes it acceptable in his sight. And so the church today as well, we need to reform our understanding of what the church is all about. And the central mission of the church is the Great Commission. The central purpose of the church is to let the nations know, 1 King 8, verse 60, that there is only one God and there is no other. There is no other God. There is no other way to get to heaven but via Christ Jesus, his son. Tell the world because people are dying today, dying in our city. You should see all the little things that flash through my phone about all the people who have died in the last week due to uh, traffic accidents, motorcycle accidents, uh, rollovers last night downtown. People are meeting their maker instantaneously. And then what? If you're not ready, if you have not confessed your sins to the Lord and received his mercy and forgiveness, you're facing the judgment. 
So let there be a burden on us for the lost. And that's why we go and we tell our friends, our family members who don't know the Lord or have known the Lord and they seem to be moving away from the Lord. We say, come back because the time is coming and you're going to meet your maker. And when you're there, you have no more second chances. Don't let others fool you about that. The Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses and whatever else, cults that are out there, they say, oh yeah, you're going to be all right. Maybe in the Catholic sense, there's this sense of purgatory and maybe you know, by the intervention of the saints above and Mary and so forth, you know, they work together and collaborate and then you'll get uh, in heaven after all. Don't believe it. There's only one day that the Lord has assigned for us to die and then the judgment. So now's the time to believe. And what opportunity we have here in America. What opportunity we have. So much is wrong with America. We hear it all the time. But there's nothing wrong yet with the immense liberties that we have to tell others the good news. If people believe the good news in North Korea or in some other place in the world, in Iran, they might lose their lives for believing in Jesus. But we still have the opportunity to freely accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, become a member of the church, become a living Christian, participating in the life of the church, and glorifying God by your day-to-day -day living in all the areas that that involves. We still have that great privilege and how blessed we are. It leads me to the third point, and that is the sacraments. If you were to go downtown, let's say uh, Main Street somewhere, and uh, you ask 20 people, um, and just assume for the moment that they're Christians. Um, what do you think about sacraments? Are sacraments important to you? I don't know, hard to say, but given the fact that um, many church leaders acknowledge the fact that there is a growing biblical illiteracy happening, I would perhaps say that maybe four or five would say, what are sacraments, Christians? What are sacraments? <laughs> the sacraments are part of the salvation story. And the reformer said, yeah, the Roman Catholic Church has sacraments, but seven? Where do you find that in the Bible? that you have to have a sacrament of marriage, a sacrament of ordination, a sacrament of when you are about to expire, the priest will come and give you last rites. Where do you find that in the Bible? These are just the examples that the reformers said, you know, we need to just cut that away. Keep it simple, please, so that the people have a clear view and perspective that will be enough for them by itself to handle and deal with. Don't make it more complicated than it is. And so what did the Bible teach us? What did Jesus institute? That we have the baptism as a sacrament and the Lord's Supper. That's all. And so the sacraments are means to strengthen your faith because all of us share that that challenge in life that we are um, weak in our faith unless the Lord upholds us. And he certainly does, doesn't he? 
by the word of God, by the preaching of the word of God, by the fellowship that we enjoy with brothers and sisters um, around the table of the Lord, um, and in some other ways I could say as well, through prayer and so forth, but the Lord is the one who upholds us because we need to be upheld because otherwise we stumble and we fall and we go in all kinds of directions, some of which Jude describes for us uh, in this passage. We will not persevere unless the Holy Spirit graciously indwells us and directs us um, to uh, follow Jesus by taking up our cross and to follow him daily. So sacraments are also uh, for the reformers of great importance and therefore they redefined not the sacrament as such, but they said the practice of the sacrament needs to be reformed according to God's word. And that's why, um, and we can't go into those details, but that's why the understanding of the Lord's Supper, for example, is radically different than what Luther and Calvin grew up with when they were born into the, uh, and they were literally born into the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, for the Roman Catholic person, uh, life meant that God is the one who is the controller, he is the maker of the world, and, um, and uh, God is uh, offering his salvation to, uh, to his people, and uh, the salvation begins with baptism, and then that sets in motion the cycle that ends with your last breath when the priest comes and gives you the sacrament of, uh, of last unction or extreme unction, last rites, and then you're good to go. Nice insurance policy. Doesn't quite work that way, right? Because there has to be faith. Saving faith. It has to be an informed, intelligent faith. A faith that a child can give, but it is, in that sense, intelligent because it is only a faith that is only coming from the word of God. And the word of God tells us that we are sinners. God provided his salvation for us and when we place our trust in him, we acknowledge our sin, we flee to Christ and his cross, we are saved. And then the means of grace uphold us until we see Jesus face to face. But the church cannot save me. My good works cannot save me. The sacraments cannot save me. Our faith, that is a gift from God, upholds us. And we receive that grace from the word and the sacrament. And finally, the last point that Kelvin uh, lists is the government of the church. And that, of course, uh, highlights the need for the, the, the reformulation of the ministry of the church in this world, how it is organized. Um, and when we, organ when we talk about the church, uh, then we talk about uh, the role of the minister in particular, uh, the, uh, the uh, reformers said, but not just the minister. It is at this time that the word consistory is being coined and becomes institutionalized because the consistory is really a derivative of the practice that Calvin encountered in Geneva. And so he uh, saw that church leaders who were all believed to be Christians, uh, ch city leaders who were all believed to be Christians, you know, um, that uh, some of those were allowed to be present on the consistory um, and then as time goes on, Calvin manages to more, uh, more uh, purely make that group just elders and not just political representatives also from the council. 
but the fact is that the pastor is part of a team, and that team is a group of elders among which he serves as the minister to minister, to serve the Bible to God's people, to feed them with God's word, as well as to administer the sacraments, particularly uh, of the Lord's Supper in a regular fashion. And so the government of the church is important. The elders rule the church. And so the reformer said presbyterial uh, government is the most accurate reflection of Christ, how Christ would have his people be governed by way of the elders. Um, But to show you that uh, many denominations uh, find this topic also very important because it's in their names, isn't it? You have then the Presbyterian Church, you have the Congregationalist Church, uh, you have the Anglican Church, you have the Roman Catholic Church, the Episcopalian Churches, and so forth. They all show that the governance of the church is uh, important to their identity. And so we have done the same thing, um, that we can uh, refer to ourselves as Reformed churches, because uh, Reformed churches are reformed according to the word of God, and the word of God dictates that the churches should be led by elders and the pastors among them. And so the governance of the church uh, is important. In the day of Martin Luther and Calvin, there was what was called nepotism. And nepotism is basically saying that if you were in a high position in the church or government, that you would have the privilege and position to just give a church position to someone you like. Uh, It could be a family member, uh, it could be somebody else, but there was usually kind of a quid pro quo involved. If I give you that church bishopric, then you give me that. you know, so that had to be cut out and, uh, and restored and reformed. Um, the governance of the church is led Christ as the head of the church who uh, rules his church by his word and spirit through the offices of pastors and elders in particular. So the problem of the Roman Catholic Church is not the issue of celibacy. You know, um, Dr. Godfrey, in a republication of this speech uh, of the necessity of reforming the church by Calvin, uh, he was my professor in seminary, Uh, he writes in that foreword the following, um, that uh, the priesthood itself is the problem. He says, it is the very fact that these people think that they have been set apart, the priests, that they have been set apart, and by being set apart are holy, The conviction that the ordination itself makes the priest holy can contribute to a mindset where a priest imagines that he is so special that his sins don't matter. And interestingly, isn't it, we see the same thing in the Protestant churches. Some of the ministries that we hear about and ministries that we don't hear about. The respect, the false respect for the minister is not rooted in some cases in his office as the deliverer of God's message, but that he has charisma, that he has talents, that he is bringing all these people in. And so when sin happens, the leadership says sometimes, that's not right, but uh, you know, tell us you're wrong and we'll move on. 
without due process, without taking that sin as seriously as you would take the sin seriously of Bob and Jane, if you get my drift. And so it is so important that we have a biblical understanding of worship, of doctrine of salvation, of the sacraments, and of how the church is governed biblically. What would a biblically guided church look like when it is heeding these principles? Well, our catechism kids learn, of course, the three marks of the church, and we know we can rattle them off, right? The faithful preaching of God's word, the faithful administration of the sacraments, and uh, the practice of Christian discipline. But what does that mean? I would like to think that the Bible is preached faithfully, that uh, it is on the basis of a clergy, the preacher, who has the proper education. Because it is not so much that you have to have a PhD to do it, but it is such a weighty office. Salvation is at stake. Truth that matters is at stake for eternity. He must understand, he must be trained to read God's word, derive its meaning, and give it to the people so that they see the connection with their lives. And so they need to be properly trained. They need to understand the original languages. They need to have the proper interpretation principles under their belt. They need to know how to craft a sermon so that the people, even the children in the pew, can understand it, that there's a savior for them. In the, in the Lord Jesus Christ and so forth. What does a church look like that is led and guided in this proper way? Well, it would be a church body of believers that continues to spiritually grow and serve in response to the preaching and teaching of God's word. Where the worship is orderly, yet spirit-filled. I would even add even moving, not just intellectually dry, academic. The membership understands its membership as belonging to family. We are members, brothers and sisters of one another. We're not just a name on the church roll. We're not an aggregate of individuals but we are body of Christ. We belong together. We care about each other. We love each other. We serve one another. There's no one higher than the other because before the cross, we're all on equal ground. And then finally, the worship that exalts God, not man. Those are four principles. Those are four characteristics that are consistent with thinking about church and a church that truly is pleasing unto the Lord, a church that understands, as the reformers said, a reformed church always continuing to reform itself on the basis of God's word. Amen. Let's pray together now. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the letter of Jude that we have in our Bibles as well. What an important, be it so brief, but what an important letter that this uh, person wrote for us to read today. 
2,000 years later. Lord, we thank you for the Bible, and we pray that all the nations in the world who don't have a Bible yet, Lord, that they would all be able to read your words of love and grace in their own language. And so bless those organizations, Lord, like Wycliffe and others who translate God's word in people's languages all around the world. But we have your word, and we know that we have your word because you have superintended that word so that throughout all the ages, with all the developments in history and culture, we still have your word in our own language. We don't have to study Latin or Greek or Hebrew to read it. And so, Father, thank you for this. And may we then open your word daily. May we read your word um, humbly and with a listening ear. Teach us, Holy Spirit, to have our lives more and more conformed, our worship of you more and more aligned with the teachings of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.